0: Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to support the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of our upcoming Mother's Day celebration across the U.S., I am so pleased to be in conversation today with David Rawl, the founder and visionary behind Theodora Park, a public park designed and cared for in a way that is reminiscent of the very best of private gardens. Located in Charleston, South Carolina, the park is dedicated to the memory of David's mother, Theodora. David is with us today to share more about the catalyst behind the founding of the park and the vision for it moving forward into the future. David, welcome to the program. I am so pleased to be speaking with you today, especially after having met you in person last year and having recently visited Theodora Park in person.
1: Thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your program, and it was a great honor to have you see theodora park in person
0: give us in as distilled a version as possible why gardens matter in your life today based on your whole history which we're going to go through but today what is your relationship with plants and gardens right now
1: well very simply they enrich my life they engage all of my senses And I love that there's always something new to discover.
0: And I think that is borne out in the story we are going to dive into now. Before we get to the founding of this beautiful urban space in downtown Charleston, uh, dedicated by you and your family and uh, community of people in 2015, I want to... Go back a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about the people and places and plants that grew you into a human for whom not only spending time and resources on a public park, but also dedicating that to your mother would become important uh, symbolically and spiritually.
1: Well, I can't remember a time when I didn't have a relationship with plants. I grew up, I was born in Boston and I grew up first in Andover, Massachusetts, where we had a little garden in the back during the war. We had a a patch of rhubarb and asparagus and we had a little goat and made our own milk and and everything was right there. And and then when we moved to Connecticut and when I was six, uh, we had gardens there. My mother was very involved in her garden out there every day with... uh, cutting it, flowers and growing vegetables, flowers, all kinds of stuff. We had, you know, the crocuses, the lilies of the valleys, the daffodils, and then and the and marigolds and morning glories and dahlias and delphinium and, and lots of vegetables. And I remember pulling those vegetables out of the earth and, 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 you know, smelling the dirt right against them. And it was just a part of our lives. So it's always been something that interests me and has uh, really nourished me
0: as you went along in your arc of life from childhood in Connecticut to an adult in Charleston, take us on that path and perhaps add to that path any particular plants or gardens that became important to you as you were growing into the adult you would become.
1: Well, I think that What happened to me serendipitously was I would occasionally visit friends in the South. And I loved their gardens because there was something so romantic about them. Uh, Things, the camellias and oh, the gardenias. I thought gardenias were the absolute (laughs) most romantic thing in the world. And I, I always saw the South as sort of a fantasy place because we had the seasons in New England we had all that cold and all those dark days and, and I just loved the vitality of, of the southern Garden and so I think that had always been the back of my mind as I as I grew up and I, I went to school in the Northeast I went to Harvard and Harvard Business School and after getting out of business school I uh, was in the broadcasting business before I developed a company in the marketing communications business that I then uh, went down to South Carolina to help my business school roommate on a project uh, in 1974, and and I ended up uh, uh, staying for for two reasons. One was the opportunity to grow my business and and be in this beautiful historic place. But but the the uh, the other was the opportunity to make a difference in this place because the period during which I've lived in Charleston from the mid-70s on, was an era when uh, a man named Joe Riley was mayor of Charleston. And I was very involved with all of his initiatives to really take Charleston out of the old times into the new times. And he was hugely successful in that. And many of those initiatives had to do with green spaces and parks, something he's been a champion of. Um, He, during his time, uh, uh, added 100 parks uh, to the city, improved 120 parks, he uh, added over 2,200 acres of parkland to uh, the city so that he, you know, that was was an opportunity for me to not only see uh, a person who was engaged in the public sphere so successfully, but also to see what green spaces could do. And, and interestingly, as I thought about the project in which I became involved, um, some of the skills that I'd learned in marketing in terms of understanding human behavior could be applied to helping create a park that would be really res- uh, something that people would want to be in.
0: You spend your long, long year career I don't know. Do the math, David. How many years w- w- were you? Forever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I started work when I was. My first job. Every vacation from the time I was 15 on was was I was working, and uh, so I retired uh, when I was 71 years old. That was 10 years ago.
0: And so, fast forward us to a little bit more about the beginnings. Of Theodora Park, where it's located, why you were familiar with it, and how this seed of an idea germinated in your brain um to to kind of shepherd and almost midwife this little piece of neglected and forgotten property into Theodora Park.
1: Well, if you think about Charleston. Charleston is a peninsula like like Manhattan only the scale is a lot smaller.
0: Okay.
1: I live in a neighborhood called Ansonborough and it was a neighborhood that was originally bought by a man named George Anson in 1726 about 64 acres and think of it as about 20 blocks As you know, city blocks, New York City kind of blocks away from the tip of that peninsula. And I live in that neighborhood, and part of that neighborhood has uh, at the corner of two streets named for George Anson, one being George, one being Anson. (laughs) There was a piece of remainder city property. And what I mean by that is the city in 1964 decided to alter that area enabled to get to, in order to build a municipal auditorium and they took george street which had dead ended at anson street and they put it all the way to the main street on the other side which is east bay street and there had been a house built in 1789 excuse me 1799 at the end of george street on anson street well they had to move that house to take the take the street all the way through which they did and they moved it on Anson Street back a bit but leaving a piece of public property at that corner that was about 50 feet wide and about 180 feet deep two-fifths of an acre and that piece of property they put a fence around they planted magnolia trees and That's about all they did. And they put a swing set at the end of it at some point, but unfortunately uh, what happened was that the magnolia trees grew so large that they protected any light from coming in. They dropped all the stuff they dropped. The surface became mud, bugs, dog messes, place was unused. And it was just ne- totally neglected. And I and and when I came here, it was didn't look good, but it wasn't terrible. But over the time, it it became really an eyesore and a danger, because at night it was dark. It was right opposite, right across the street from this municipal auditorium, which had been upgraded, and it was really uh, 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 really an eyesore. And I saw it as an opportunity to. Make it a beautiful green space and maybe do it so well that others might want to do that with other neglected or underutilized spaces in this community. And it was here finally an opportunity to do something in honor of my mother.
0: I would love for you to describe your mom, describe her work and role in in our world, and um, describe earlier attempts that you and your uh, siblings—is it just one sister?
1: Yes, I just have one sister.
0: You and your sister had had sort of explored to honor the memory of your mother prior to coming to this moment, David.
1: Well, my mother— was a very gentle, quiet, strong person. She loved nature. She loved art. She had great values. Uh, She was uh, a person you couldn't help but admire. She was a very giving person. And she volunteered in our local hospital in Connecticut for I think 32 or three years. And her role there every day was to sit at a desk that people came to in the morning, or all day and ask where to go or how to do this or what, you know, just a simple information desk. But she was the entry point. She was the person who made you feel comfortable, at peace, just to, lowered your anxiety and helped you get on your way. So after she died in 1985, my sister and I went to the hospital and, and, and we thought it would be wonderful to have in perpetuity, a vase, a little small vase of flowers on that desk uh, that would, you know, do what flowers do, make people feel good. And, uh, and that would be a way to honor our mother. maybe there'd be a little plaque that we didn't really care about, thats so much as we did about having the flowers and and being able to honor her. And the hospital said, we're not very interested in that. So that was, that has always been on my mind as a uh, mission unaccomplished. And so this park provided an opportunity to try to write that. And I must say that one of the great inspirations to me for that is Paley Park in New York, which is still after all these years, and it was built in the 60s, is arguably, I think, the best pocket park in this country, and it is—it is—it's impeccable. We've tried to follow a lot of the same criteria that they did so well, and—and and it is in honor of William Paley's father. So there's a, there's a, there's a parallel there that, that we are trying to emulate.
0: This is Cultivating Place. This week, in honor of Mother's Day, we're in conversation with David Rawl, the vision and force behind the creation of a small but mighty public park. Located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, Theodora Park is dedicated to the memory of David's mother, Theodora. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about the specific plants, people, and artful power of the park itself. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the California Native Plant Society, on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. Of the Society's many programs and publications of note, one I am so excited about as the growing season gets underway is their newest program bloom california this campaign aims to increase native plant awareness appreciation and most importantly planting across the state transforming our gardens parks business fronts and beyond into native plant habitats over 85 nurseries across california have partnered to offer you Bloom California Native Plants. Native plants highlight a beauty unique to your region. They support wildlife and are climate conscious. Visit bloomcalifornia.org to find a nursery near you that is carrying Bloom California plants as certified by their logos at participating nurseries to discover these beautiful flowering, habitat-providing native plants, and then get planting. Hey, it's Jennifer. When I think of the word mothering, I certainly see and miss my own mother in my mind's eye and in my heart. But I also think of all of the souls, human and geospatial, that have grown me up more fully, that have mothered me. They have all contributed to my growth and supported that growth along the way. With that in mind, I want to thank every person who contributes to the support and growth of Cultivating Place. In the second half of 2021 and the first part of 2022, that includes Flora, Adriana, Amy, Andrew, Amanda, Beth Ann, Karen, Charlotte, Chad, Cherise, Claire, Mary Pat, C. Petty, Claire, Donna, Ellen, Gwen, Erica, Evelyn, Frank, Fielding, Gus, David, Hugh, Kim, Camilla, Jan, Janice, Josh, Karen, Kate. Kathleen, Karen, Christy, Leslie, Laura, Libby, Lily, Lillian, Linda, Liz, Jason, Maria, Marcia, Marcy, Donald, Maggie, Marnie, Mary, Maureen, Mary, Melissa, Kathy, Mary, Mary, Nancy, Pamela, Paige, Paula, Peggy, Penn, Perla, Patricia, Paulette, Jennifer, Rachel, Rebecca, Rebecca, Richard, Rebecca, Sabrina, Ruth, Sarah, Sarah, Sayaka, Saxon, Sheila, Susan, Margo, Shannon, Sylvia, Steve, Susan, Nan, Sophia, Terry, Tricia, Mary, Nina, Vanessa, Violet, and Tish. If I have forgotten your name, please accept my apologies. And for everyone who has contributed to the growth of Cultivating Place over these many years, this episode is my Mother's Day thank you card full of love and appreciation to you. I literally cannot do this weekly work of Cultivating Place without your support. And I hope you have grown here with me. If you haven't yet had a chance to contribute to Cultivating Place and our communal engagement, empowerment, and encouragement of great growing gardeners the world over, but you would like to, heck, you might even keep meaning to. There is no time like right now, the start of the growing season, to take part. Follow the links through the support button, which you will find at the top or right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. You can pledge your support and contribution right there. And thank you in advance. Happy Mother's Day to all. We're back now to our Mother's Day special in conversation with David Rawl, a longtime community member of Charleston, South Carolina, who, along with his wife, Carol, spearheaded the crafting and care of a small public urban space dedicated in honor of David's mother, Theodora. The park was opened in 2015 after years of planning and preparing. As we come back, David shares more about the specifics of the design, installation, and planting.
1: I think the important thing in any project, anything you do in life, is to be intentional about it. What is it you're trying to do? And what we're trying to do is create a place that does reflect the personal quality, the the handmade quality of a great private garden, but make it, as my wife likes to say, free and open to the public. And people come to Charleston, you know, they look at all these beautiful private gardens and they're private i mean they can only look at them don't touch And, uh, Mm. and that's important to me so i mean i think it's really a great opportunity to have try to provide that that sensibility in a public space so to do that required a lot of collaborative players the first was the city because the city owns the property So I went to uh, Mayor Riley and I asked him if he would be interested in us doing that and uh, would he help support it with some funds from the city. And he was wonderfully enthusiastic. He's been a great champion of parks. Uh, After he finished his 10th four-year term, uh, he, uh, one of the great parks in America, the Waterfront Park here in Charleston, was named in his honor, as it should be, and he just, he totally gets how valuable green spaces are to people. So Mm -hmm. I felt I had the support of the city, but the key is that in a public realm, you just can't count on continuity of support in terms of the maintenance of something. So, or even the creation of something great, because what happens is it gets compromised. I felt I really needed to have some private help with that, not only in fundraising, but also in the the maintenance of the park. Mm -hmm. It turned out that a few years before this, probably around 2000, a wonderful person in South Carolina named Darla Moore uh, created a Charleston Parks Conservancy, which we all are familiar with parks conservancies. They are usually, I think, single park enterprises, which help uh, get private funding to support the uh, maintenance and sometimes creation of public parks, and and they just do a great job. This one is not single purpose, but it's multi purpose. It's to, that is to say, it serves many green spaces, parks, uh, and parks in in Charleston. And a man named Harry Lassane, who had worked with Mayor Riley very closely in his administration, had taken over the leadership of that organization, and that was a big step forward. In other words, I felt that we had an entity that could work with the cities with whom we could get more help in maintaining the park and also in funding it in in sort of an indirect way. So that was the second big step. And the third big step was the team that that put it together. And and everything they did, as I say, was driven by this intention.
0: One of the things you have articulated really beautifully, and and I think it's Uh, a fact of our lives um, in urban spaces in the US, uh, certainly, is the vulnerability of our public green spaces, whether those are national parks, or they are pocket parks uh, throughout the country, and their vulnerability to the vagaries of political and uh, budgetary, you know, uh, evolutions and iterations. And that The political and social infrastructure you just described uh, is really such a resourceful and flexible way of helping to protect some of these entities uh, and preserve them above and beyond what, you know, outside of the... The winds of of political and budgetary changes, I think, is so is so critical, and it is a wonderful reallocation of, you know, things like financial resources and the disparities in those into assets that are public assets. Um, there's something really important right there uh, that I think is such a valuable model for anyone to, to, first of all, understand that structure that is generally invisible and and be able to work like resourcefully and creatively adapt within that.
1: Absolutely. You're right. You can't depend on the uh, public entities to be able to continually support things like this, because I mean, think about it. Suppose uh, cities come upon hard times. Oh, what do they do? Well, sometimes they'll close a library or they'll have a library only open a few days or whatever else it is like that. And That has labor implications, but the books don't care. But try telling a plant, uh, we can only water you now uh, once every two weeks and right. fertilizer is not on the budget and uh, pruning. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. So what are you going to have then? You're going to have just boring uninteresting green spaces so you've got to make certain that regardless of economic ups and downs regardless of political ups and downs where where a, a leadership comes in and says you know we're going to we want to build something else or we want to do something else you've got to protect it and i think we have a responsibility those of us who love plants green spaces flowers we have a responsibility not just to make our own beautiful spaces, but to share the love, get involved with, support, and contribute to, in any way we can, the public realm.
0: Yay. Bravo. I, I could not agree with you more. I want to dig a little deeper into not just creating spaces that um, are you know well and consistently cared for, but your vision for having a park with private level design and details. Why was that important to you, David? Why was, why was not a simple, you know, all surfaces, easy tread, whatever, you know, generic model public park, why was that not enough for you?
1: well i don't think it's ever worth doing anything that isn't done right and i don't see anything right about asphalt pathways stuff like that i mean it's just or a cement pool it doesn't interest me it interests me to do something that's better and more aspirational not only in and of itself but as a as a benchmark for others to exceed our local paper called theodora park a model for the future well, great! I can't wait for there to be more innovative parks. Whatever else there is, but but you just you got to do it right or don't do it. And 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 otherwise, what's the point? Go back to the intention. If the intention is to create a great space that has a feeling of a private thing, well, that's not going to be that's not going to be an asphalt uh, pathway. So you look at every aspect of this park. It is more distinctive than that and it has much more of a personal feel and therefore much more of a a personal enjoyment i walked in there this morning there's a there's a man sitting there he's he's got his he's got his computer he's got a chair that he moved a chair and table moved just where he wants it in the shade he's got his another chair that he's got his his uh, backpack on. He's got a scooter there. He's—I mean—he is so set up there. It's fabulous. It's just fabulous. And that's what happens.
0: Right. I want to now really dive into the layout and the design and the details of this beautiful little pocket park. Describe to us the layout of the park. Remind us of the the size, and then give us a little bit of like. Where these the exposures are, and, and how the ultimate uh, design unfolds as you walk across it.
1: Well, as I as I said, it's a rectangle at, a, at an intersection. So imagine that there are two uh, long sides,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one long side is along a street, George Street. And that side has three live oak trees and a bed of Confederate jasmine beneath them. So you can, you can see right through that into the park. The other long side is an interior side that has the back side of that 1799 brick house as its backdrop, which is a beautiful, beautiful old brick, and, and then the back part of that property. And it is planted with a dozen palmetto trees, which are state tree here, which is beautiful and, you know, uh, palm tree, but very high, and three of the remaining uh, magnolia trees uh, toward the back. Uh, and underneath those trees are rows of sasanqua and camellia interspersed uh, with a, a bed of holly fern beneath them all of this is all pretty simple, you know, clean design. Mm -hmm. So there are those two long edges, The, the short edges. The long edges are about 180 feet long, short edges about 50 feet wide. So the short edge that's on the street has now five saucer magnolia trees, which are gorgeous, wonderful color and again ability to see through into the park it has azaleas it has three different kinds of azaleas and it has a bed of holly fern beneath that on the other end the other short end which faces a a wall a brick wall uh, uh, that leads to the next property that has five Red maples, boy, are they beautiful. The end of the, that red color, oh my gosh, it is just like, are you kidding? And (laughs) a whole uh, bed of azaleas underneath those those, uh, red maples. Then the centerpiece of the park is a 32 foot long fountain pool that has 370 12 by 12 inch handmade tiles by the ceramic artist Paul Haru, And it is, it's like a magnet, this pool. I mean, it has, people just are just drawn to it. They gaze at it, they, the color is so beautiful. Uh, and, and anybody who wants to see pictures of the park, you know, you can go to the website, uh, which is theodorapark.com, not hard to find, and there's a gallery section, and there's lots of pictures. But that pool, it's surrounded by bluestone terrace, and then all of the paths are in the park are sort of a variation of the uh, bas- of a basket weave pattern so that they again have that sort of handmade look. So those are the surfaces. And then there are two long benches, one with back, one without back, that are just exquisite benches that were designed for, uh, the park that's called The Battery. It's a 25-acre park at the tip of Manhattan. And if anybody has not seen that and has an opportunity to go to New York to see that, i just tell you, it is a wonderfully inspirational park, and it's brilliantly done. And the woman behind it all is a woman named Wari Price, and she was a great inspiration to me and a great supporter to us in, in doing this project. And that bench was designed for that park, and she allowed us to... Use it in this park because I think it's the only other place it's used. And why it's so great is it's hugely comfortable. It's yeah. wonderfully comfortable. Very. It's made of ipé wood, which is of course strong as it as it can be, and 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 it's just beautiful. You you sort of see right through it. And we have movable tables and chairs, which is uh, really important uh, uh, in in per, in terms of people's interaction with the park. And I I'm, I'm sure that your Listeners are familiar with William H. White, known as Holly White, because of his middle name being Hollingsworth, and who was a brilliant urbanist. And he wrote a book that I think is just terrific, called The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. It was in 1956, I think it came out. And he emphasized three things that we have tried to reflect uh, in Theodore Park. One is the importance of not only having water, but making it accessible to people. He he wrote that it's not right to put people bef- put water before people and then keep them away from it. And I think that's <laughs> I think that's a really good point. And the second thing he said was be sure to recognize the value of movable chairs because he called them the the ultimate tool in engaging the public in urban spaces. And I'm not sure any other part of Charleston has anything there. It they're just makes it so personal. And the third thing is that, uh, as he says, passers by are users of parks too. If you look at how many people pass the Adora Park, mostly in vehicles, many on foot, they need to have as good an experience as people being in it. That is to say, they need to see through into it. They can't be fences or Uh, hedges or any other blockage to that experience and the other thing that we have in the park is a gate not not a gate as in a functioning gate but a gate as a as in a gate on a pedestal and it's a gate designed by the very famous wrought iron artist named philip simmons philip simmons born 1912 he's legendary and guy almost at 100 made very close to 100 and he his work is seen all over Charleston in a functional context, but it's in two of the Smithsonian museums. And I thought it ought to be shown as art here. So we were very fortunate to find a just this exquisite gate that he had designed and made himself. And that gate is on a pedestal just very discreetly uh, presented in Theodore Park.
0: This is Cultivating Place. In honor of Mother's Day, we're in conversation this week with David Rawl, the visionary behind the creation of a small but mighty public park in downtown South Carolina. Theodora Park is dedicated to the memory of David's mother, Theodora. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about how the park is actually experienced by its people and why this is an important model for other urban public parks as we move forward. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. In thinking about this model of public park, as shown and illustrated by Theodora Park, I am hearing echoes of our conversation of two weeks ago with Dee Dee and John of the National Association for Olmsted Parks and the Audubon Society, respectively, and their work reviving not just Olmsted parks across the country but any and all parks. I think too of Rebecca McMacken's work, uplifting park management and care, as well as the quality of living and working for park people. We can all learn from these stories and these models and contribute more proactively in the parks in our own lives. I think I would love your thoughts on this. Are there other unique, public, private, maybe especially rematriated land and care to first peoples that you think are good models for us all to learn from? If so, send me the names of these parks or lands and peoples and how they became or are becoming even more beautifully stewarded and welcoming places for all. You know how. Send me a comment on Instagram. Instagram cultivating underscore place, or send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your public, private park stories. We're back now to our Mother's Day special in conversation with David Rawl, who spearheaded the crafting and care of a small park in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Dedicated in honor of his mother, Theodora, this almost pocket park is across from a large municipal center, has at least three historic churches within view of the park in different directions. The central tiled fountain... The mature native trees, the custom comfortable benches, and the movable bright purple bistro tables and chairs that live in Theodora Park give the space the feel of a living room of our own. And people of all shapes, sizes, ages, and endeavors make themselves at home in the park throughout any given day. From strolling babies to walking elders to having a business meeting to leading a tai chi or kettlebell class. Theodora Park was opened in 2015. And as we come back, David shares more about how important the public park space was to the community around it almost immediately after the opening.
1: The park was dedicated on June 5th, 2015. It's at the Northern end of the Ansonborough neighborhood. And I would say that as people know, you know, communities have areas that are more minority or not, and ours is, gets to be more diverse as you get North of of Theodore Park. And frankly, one of the things that interested me in doing the park was it faces North and I wanted it to be hopefully a way, a place that as diverse a group of people as possible would want and feel comfortable in gathering. Well, within two weeks of the dedication of the park, this horrible, really unspeakable tragedy happened at Mother Emanuel Church, which is a block and a half north of Theodore Park. It's it's just hard even to think about it, much less talk about it. Mm -hmm. A man came in in the evening. He sat with parishioners at a Bible study class for over an hour, and then he brutally murdered as many of them as he possibly could and walked Mm -hmm. out. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, What happened after that, most people remember this outpouring of support and this extraordinary expression of forgiveness uh it was it was a experience that he he was not from here but he he came down to this and it was an experience that brought this community together and what i saw in theodora park every day was people walking up or down the street to pay or having paid their respects at mother emmanuel would come and sit in the park for a little while because the shade in the trees, water fountain, sound of it, the peacefulness of the landscaping and the design and the setting. And they might be young, they might be old, they might be black, they might be white. They would start to talk, and you'd see this coming together, and it was, it was just wonderful. And that's uh, it. It, to me, if, if that had been the end, of it would have been all worthwhile. And I cannot tell you how much that would have meant to my mother.
0: Yeah,
1: she would love that she would not like that her name's on park. She's she just wouldn't want the attention. But she would love that moment.
0: And I, you know, I, I think about how you described your mother, I think about those good humans in our world that sit in spaces like the entrance ways of hospitals, and they welcome and they make comfortable anyone who walks through that door in in probably one of the worst moments or, or days or weeks of their lives, and they are remarkable humans. And then I think about the the healing and welcome and embrace that well-cared-for public green spaces also afford and there is this beautiful parallel between your mother in her role and this little park in its role and what we what we value and uplift in our world and I would love to see that vase of flowers on her desk in the hospital in Connecticut, but this is so much more and serves that same beautiful green gift of welcome and embrace.
1: Well, I'd just like to, to acknowledge really this, some of the team that did put it together. You asked me about that and I wasn't, didn't include it in my response, but I'm just thinking about, you know, you mentioned Sheila Wertimer, who is a brilliant designer and has done so many different landscape gardens and, and so on here and she is just amazing and Paul Heru, the ceramic artist I mentioned but but uh, Philip Simmons and his gate and the the people who built the uh, park. I mean, it's just the commitment of people like Mike Rollins, who did the lighting. It's the only, it's the only park with landscape lighting around here. It's a, a Bill Kent, who did all the masonry, absolutely impeccable by hand. The aqua blue pool people, you know, you think of it: people who put in swimming pools, the last thing they'd want to do is put handmade tiles together, which are each one measures a little bit differently. And I got to tell you, the guys who worked on that, they loved it because they loved the challenge. They loved making something special and something so good. And Chris Gustin, who's a ceramicist with whom Paul Giroux worked. I mean, I could go on and on. There are so many people who were so generous with their time and their talent because they wanted to make a difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is so true of so many people. And, and you and I talked about this that people want to help. In, in ways that they see are meaningful. And they, they in fact, I think are often longing to find ways or to be invited into ways that make these kinds of differences. Uh, and y- you had mentioned to me, you know, how many of them either waived their fees or halved their fees or just contributed their portion of this park uh, in this effort to to... Realize the vision, and since the opening, you know, I mean, you think about these last few years, David, and that park has been able to uh, invite and welcome and embrace and comfort in so many unforeseeable circumstances and times in our world. You and your your very gracious wife, Carol Perkins, shared with me some about additional lighting uh, and additional maybe even gatherings in the in the park over these last few years of pandemic. Would you like to share a couple of those?
1: Well, first of all, we're the only small park with holiday lighting. And and I went to Mike Rollins who designed the landscape lighting right at the very beginning. And I said, look, let's do something really beautiful at the holiday time. It's just such a great time. And he created these lights that are in no other park. It's a combination of things. One is these, these laser lights that they're up in the trees and what they do is they throw down these little red, green and blue dots on the, or looks almost like dots on the surface, on the water, on the tiles, on the on the bluestone brick and everything. And it's just like jewels, you know, confetti, confetti of yeah. jewels. And And kids come in and they try to pick them up off the, off of the flags. And, and I mean, it's just beautiful. And then he has some lights, these multicolored lights from Italy that are really are unique. Again, unique here. I've never seen them anywhere else. He said that not only else. So I said to him in, in 2020 because of the you know real challenges of how people had gone in the pandemic, he said, let's do something special. Let's think about adding words to our communication. And and I got this wonderful man, Reese Williams, who had been uh, the production manager for Spoleto Festival for 35 years, and was a good friend. And he, I said, you got to figure out how we can do this technically. And what we wanted to do was project words on the, some of the trees vertically, the palmetto trees, mm-hmm. and on some of the hard surfaces on that inside long wall, including the wall and chimney of this, uh, of the uh, 1799 Uh, brick beautiful brick house and it's tricky because you have to figure out how to do it technically and all like that and we did and we had about oh i don't know maybe eight different uh, images some were single words like on the vertically on the on the palmetto's words like hope or imagine And, and then on the surface there were longer phrases like be kind whenever possible it is always possible that was on the wall of the of the brick house, and then on that that house's chimney was a uh, a quote: of, um, um, "Only in the darkness can you see the stars." And uh, it, it were quotes like that, but they didn't come on all at once. It was sort of faded in. and I, I say it's like the Bellagio fountain; not, uh, <laughs> not it was quite as grand. But but the response to that, I I mean, I just can't tell you how many people wrote me or wrote about it it got uh and it it absolutely captivated uh people and i it it was really i mean people keep saying well can you bring it back i don't i don't think it's very ambitious project but i it's people wrote that they uh i hear somebody wrote me about oh that hope is indeed the saving grace for all those who are persecuted or beaten down or marginalized. It's a hard thing to maintain, but steadies our course. You've done a wondrous thing with this part, not only as a tribute to your mother, but as a beacon for the rest of us, one that keeps hope alive in all of our hearts. And this eight-year-old child who loved it, one night she was just in awe, she walked up to me and looked up at me and she said, I wish your mother could see this. And it was just so sweet.
0: mm. mm. You know, in in this uh, year of 2022, it is the seventh year of Theodora Park, uh, adding welcome and respite uh, to the city of Charleston and any visitors to it. Is there anything you would like to add about the importance of this kind of gardened green space in our world, David?
1: Well, I think it's... It's just so important for the private sector to get involved with the public realm. And I've seen so much of an impact that this small space has. And I think if anybody had any kind of interest in doing that, they can and should pursue it. I mean, your listeners know better than anybody how powerful plants and green spaces are and can be. And we all know now what the health benefits are. It's been measured so many different ways and we've all experienced it, these, particularly these last couple of years. But I would urge people to, to really consider small underutilized spaces. It, you know, That's where the running room is. There aren't gonna be that many more millennial parks or whatever else it is. It, it, it's these little small interstices where you can really make a difference and you can make a difference for not a fortune and always have a clear intention. I think that's critical in anything we do in life, but especially in, in something that is designed. And I, obviously, the public private collaboration is, is so important. So is having a great team. And my favorite quote is know or listen to those who know. And I think that I was very fortunate in listening to people like my good friend, John Alshower, who headed the Highline board and Wari Price and, and so many others. you uh, got, got a plan for the future, and, and, and that means don't just raise money to create something. You've got to have money to maintain it, and you've got to have thought through what happens if whoever is now maintaining it or whatever else it is has a problem. What are you going to do about it? You've got to You've really got to think what Mayor Riley used to say is put the 50 year or 100 year rule against it. What's it gonna be like in 50 years? What's it gonna be like in 100 years? And I think that's really important. I, I'm a strong believer that money follows ideas and you should you know, just pursue what you think is right, get enough to not only create it, but also sustain it and always, always commit to excellence. Why, why would be involved with something? That, you didn't think was gonna be excellent and just never settle and never give up. But it's just, it's just so important. And last year during the, or one of the years, I guess 2020 during the pandemic, we posted on Instagram every couple of days, a quote about nature and the value of it. Uh, not that anybody needed to know about, but it was just a way of reinforcing what we all know. And I was, I was looking through them last night and, and, it's it, one is uh, nature brings solace to all of our troubles and I was saying we all have a lot of troubles but just think of the person who wrote that was Anne Frank and, and it, this, is a, this is a person who died at age 16 and that they could be so perceptive and, and be faced with all she was facing to, to, to articulate that nature brings solace to all our troubles. So those of us who love nature, love flowers, love plants, and, and, and have cultivated them for ourselves, and are so grateful that we're able to do so, I think where the real running room is, is to share with others. Carol and I were in, in Sweden a few years ago. We saw this painting in the Modern Museum in Stockholm. And it, it was a sort of, only had words on it. It said, do you want to live temporarily or permanently? And I think the way to live permanently is to make a difference. And a good way to make a difference is to enhance the public realm with what we all love, which is the beauty of nature, flowers, plants, and gardens.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It is such a pleasure to share this story of this beautiful park forward.
1: Likewise. You're terrific. Really terrific. Bye-bye, Jennifer.
0: David Rawl is the founder and force with his wife, Carol, behind Theodora Park, a public park designed cared for, and maintained in a way that is reminiscent of the very best of private gardens. Located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, Theodora Park is dedicated to the memory of David's mother, Theodora. Happy Mother's Day to all mothering souls and spaces. May all of our gardens, public and private, be welcoming, nurturing, shall we say mothering, places for all. Join us again next week when we're joined by Madeline DeVries Hooper and Jeff Hughes, creator of the PBS series Garden Fit. Based on the truth, we all know in our bones and muscles that gardening is in fact a full contact sport and religion. Madeline and Jeff will share skills that keep us gardeners gardening more comfortably for years to come. They will help us to get and stay garden fit listen in next week cultivating place is a co-production of north state public radio a service of cap radio licensed to chico state enterprises cultivating place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the california native plant society for more information and many great images and links to Theodora Park in Charleston, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes under the podcast tab. That's all at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha were based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.